0: I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of Trial Balloon.
1: Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more.
0: So Tegan, give me the San Francisco update. Earlier this week, I posted a Financial Times story. Defaults raise alarm over stability of San Francisco's commercial property. Owners have handed back the keys to some of the city's most valuable real estate. Lenders to San Francisco's beleaguered commercial real estate market are braced for defaults on billions of dollars of debt. We've all read about the various problems in the city by the bay. And now with real-time reporting, Tegan, what are you seeing on the ground? First of all, San Francisco is an absolutely beautiful
1: city, but the one thing that we saw which was really kind of jaw-dropping was Joe Biden's motorcade headed to a fundraiser the other night. There must have been a hundred vehicles, motorcycles, SUVs. We saw the beast and you had ambulances, you had security services, you had everything. It was an extraordinary sight as they zoomed up a hill to bring Biden to his fundraiser. It was a remarkable
0: thing. And that big motorcade that was for Biden, that wasn't to help you get around town and avoid any traffic. No, it actually slowed me down getting to dinner that night, so it
1: was definitely not for me.
0: I've known you a lot of years. It takes a lot for something to get between you and dinner.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was funny though because you wondered the entire time: Is Biden actually in this motorcade, or is he in a Toyota Corolla somewhere going in the back entryway? You know, <laughs> or in one of those driverless vehicles that you uh, sent me the video of? The other thing that was amazing is that you kind of thought that Joe Biden might be one of the guys on the motorcycles with his sunglasses. Glasses on. But anyway, we weren't quite sure, but it was definitely Biden's
0: motorcade. A pretty extraordinary show. Of course, it's always cool to see one of those uh, motorcades. But sincerely, any thoughts? Have you, have, I mean, you're there, you know, you're a tourist, you're vacationing. I don't know if you're getting a feel, but are you getting any sense? I mean, we all do read so much about San Francisco and the issues that it's having. Are you getting any sense of that or that's not affecting you in the locations where you dine? It has not been affecting
1: us at this point, but as you know, I have long held that New York City is the greatest city in the world, but I have to say San Francisco might be one of the most beautiful cities. It is just a gorgeous place, and none of that has changed, even if the commercial real estate market is failing or having problems, and even though there's obviously reports of increased crime everywhere, it has not
0: taken away from the general beauty of the city. It is a beautiful city for sure. I haven't been there in a while. It's time to get back. It's also time to get on with business. Gallup released a new poll and analysis this week. Abortion remains a potent issue for pro-choice voters. Gallup reports a year after U.S. voters attached record high importance to abortion as an election issue, a new Gallup poll finds it's retaining its potency, particularly for the pro-choice side of the debate. Currently, 28% of registered voters say they will only vote for candidates for major offices who share their position on abortion, one percentage point higher than the previous high of 27% recorded in 2022 and 2019. Point number two, a record low 14% now say abortion is not a major issue in their vote. While similar to last year's 16%, it is down nine points from the prior low of 23% recorded in 2007. More people are feeling that abortion is a major issue in their vote. And then lastly, the remaining 56% now say abortion is just one factor among many to their vote. This is similar to 54% in 2022, but significantly higher than the 45% to 51% readings over the prior decade. Tegan, does abortion remain issue number one as we head towards 2024?
1: That's a good question. I don't think it's issue number one anymore. As I said last week on Trial Balloon, I think that Donald Trump is the number one issue in the 2024 presidential campaign. I think whether he's on the ticket or whether he's not on the ticket, he is such a big force in politics that he will become issue number one. But abortion is a massive liability for Republicans now. It was the driver of getting people out to vote for two or three decades, and now it's a real problem. Now it's a driver for Democrats to get out to vote. So for those people who are not voting about Donald Trump, they might be voting for abortion rights and support for abortion rights, as you've just shown in those polls, is higher than it's been in decades. And it's a real liability for Republicans at this
0: point. To the point that you were just making, where's the real motivating factor? And I guess what I'm really getting at here is over the last couple of cycles, getting out your base has sounded to be, seemed to be the most important part of an election campaign. Maybe it's always been that way, but it just seems even more so that it's motivating your base, motivating your base. Is this more motivating for Democrats than for Republicans? Well, I think it is at
1: this point. I don't think it was, but obviously that Supreme Court decision changed everything. I think the biggest reason, and this is something that Democrats have lamented for years, was that abortion was never an issue that actually got people to the polls. And I think the main reason for that is that many Democrats, they never thought Roe v. Wade would be repealed. They just didn't see it coming. Now that it has, you've seen, just as you've shown in these polls, you've seen a complete reversal in terms of what's happening. All of a sudden, people realize not only is it possible that abortion rights can be banned, it's happening in the states. You even have movement on the national level. It looks like Republicans are going to try to force through a national abortion ban. They'll probably take a vote on this in the House of Representatives before the 2024 election. And while Republicans believe that's an issue that gets out their base, I think it's a much more an issue for Democrats right now, because these Democrats never believed it would be taken away. So we've seen a complete reversal in terms of the motivating effects of that. And it's not just these polls. You know, people can talk about the polls and the flawed methodologies and all of that and whether we should even trust the polls anymore. We've seen abortion as a key motivator for Democrats in virtually every special election since the Supreme Court decision. It was true in 2022. It is true in 2023. And it is still driving Democrats to vote numbers that they were not doing so before. So while I still believe that Donald Trump is going to be the biggest issue headed into next year, abortion is a really big issue for Democrats still. And that's all bad news for Republicans because those are both issues that are not good issues for Republicans
0: in general. There's another wrinkle to this that came up this week, and this gets to one of the issues that I know you know from our conversations I find really, really fascinating. And we talked about it in a different context the other week when Gavin Newsom was threatening to charge Ron DeSantis around the sending of immigrants to California. And this is the tensions between the states. What ends up happening when laws in one state run directly contrary to laws in other states? And obviously with the Dobbs ruling and the pushing of abortion laws now down to the states, unless of course, as you stated, Republicans try to get a federal ban of some kind. There's huge tension between the states and And the New York Times reported this week that the New York state legislature gave final approval on Tuesday to legislation that provides legal protection for New York doctors to prescribe and send abortion pills to patients in states that have outlawed abortion. The measure, along with similar new laws in several other states controlled by Democrats, could significantly expand medication abortion access by allowing more patients in states that restrict abortion to end pregnancies at home without traveling to states where abortion is legal. How is that going to work? So a New York doctor can prescribe medication to a patient in Texas or a patient in Florida, pick your red state, and New York is saying, we're going to protect these doctors, and I believe Texas has already passed legislation, and if not, they were talking about it, maybe it didn't get passed, to be able to go after people out of state. Now, you've got state-on-state action just waiting to happen.
1: No, it's a very good point. And I think that this is why ultimately these cases will be going back to the Supreme Court at some point. You know, All of these laws, all of these measures will be challenged. But if you go back to just a few years ago when you and I first met at the Kennedy School and we would see Tip O'Neill, the former Speaker of the House, roaming the halls, he was the one who said all politics is local. I think that the abortion issue, while people are attempting to make it a local issue and allow states to create their own laws, I think this tension that you've highlighted here just shows that it is a national issue, that ultimately this will be decided at the national level, whether by the courts or ultimately by the legislatures. The pressure is pretty intense for both sides to create a national law one way or another, granting abortion rights or taking them away at a certain time in pregnancy.
0: That's interesting because one of the things I was going to ask you is for this to actually motivate voters, does there have to be local legislation or a local items on the ballot for folks actually to get out to vote. And what you're saying, what I'm interpreting you as saying is, no, not really. Even in states where there is not local legislation or local ballot amendments or such, this is a national issue and this is going to motivate voters nationwide when Florida bans abortion
1: at six weeks, I think that motivates abortion rights activists across the entire country. So every time one of these red states further restricts abortion, it becomes a bigger issue nationally. So this is just one of the ways that our political landscape has changed over the last 30 years is that while all politics was once local, it seems like almost all of these issues have become national issues. We know what's happening in each of these localities, in each of these states on all of these issues. And we know that what happens is it Kind of spreads from state to state. And so instantly, it becomes a national issue. Abortion is probably the ultimate in national issues at this point.
0: Next question for you. Is America going to have a third-party candidate this year? Here's why I ask. RFK Jr., I saw a poll. He's getting 20% of the Democrat vote right now. Political Wire this week on Wednesday had a post titled, Mislabeled. And you quoted Joe Klein. No Labels is now promoting a third party strategy in the 2024 presidential campaign, which may be the most nefarious electoral ploy since the Russians secretly worked to support Green Party candidate Jill Stein in 2016. According to Tara Palmeri in Puck, No Labels is raising $70 million to launch this effort. It plans a nominating convention next April in Dallas. That's point number two. Point number three, Politico on Wednesday this week published. Terrible idea. Fellow Dems try to stop Manchin's presidential flirtation. Many are skeptical he'll mount a third-party White House bid. They also fear it could hand the GOP both the Senate and the White House if he does. RFK Jr., no labels. Joe Manchin, third-party candidate time?
1: Yes, I do think there will be a third-party candidate, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be RFK Jr. I think RFK Jr., as Jonathan Last wrote earlier this week, he kind of portrayed his candidacy as a fifth column in American politics as a secret effort really to kind of align with the Trump side of the American political spectrum and that, you know, he predicted that RFK Jr. would actually speak at the Republican convention, which would be fairly interesting, but more in a way to hurt Joe Biden than for him to run himself. Whether Joe Manchin runs or not, I can't say. It's interesting that Joe Manchin refuses to say he won't run, and he certainly hasn't talked about running for re-election, or he hasn't confirmed whether he's going to run for re-election against Jim Justice in West Virginia. But the third-party candidate that I would be worried most about if you're Democrats is probably Cornell West. The professor who uh, has long been allied with Bernie Sanders in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, just as we record here, he has just named Jill Stein, the former Green Party candidate, as his campaign manager you know, when you're talking about a close election and you saw what Jill Stein did to Hillary Clinton's candidacy back in 2016, I think Cornel West could actually get enough of the vote to potentially make a difference in a close election. So that's a third party candidacy I'd be worried about if I was a Democrat. But the one third party candidacy that you don't mention, Chris, is the ones Republicans should be worried about whether or not Donald Trump runs third party if for some reason he does not win the Republican nomination. And so while he's running way ahead of his Republican rivals right now in the polls, there are some indications that his support is softening. There's been a few polls showing that the support may be softening and that he's getting more and more candidates on the Republican side attacking him. Chris Christie is the human wrecking ball who's going after him and he wants to get on the debate stage. But we also have Will Hurd, the former Republican congressman from Texas who has announced his candidacy, and he is very much an anti-Trump Republican. So the more voices that you have out there that are attacking Trump, who knows, perhaps his support will decline to the point where someone else can sneak through and grab the Republican nomination from him. The problem for Republicans is that if Trump runs as a third-party candidate, it seems that they would be toast in this election.
0: And can a third-party candidate in this cycle be anything more than a spoiler? I mean, we remember Ralph Nader. Was Ross Perot considered a spoiler for One Direction or, or another in 92 against Bush and Clinton?
1: Each side kind of claimed different things, but the analysis that was done suggested that his support pretty much split both ways.
0: That's what I thought. So hard to say that he was a spoiler. Nader, obviously, in 2000 with Gore and you just pointed out Jill Stein in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. In this cycle, can a third-party candidate actually win, or can the third-party candidate only be a spoiler? And let's hold aside, I think, Trump as a third-party candidate.
1: Yeah, I don't think any third-party candidate can win our ballot laws. No, I don't think Trump can win as a third-party candidate either. What Trump could do if he ran as a third-party candidate is he could destroy the Republican Party. (laughs) So that's, that's, an entire, that's a subject for another podcast episode, Chris. But I, I think that the Republican Party would be in deep, deep trouble as a party if Trump were to run third party, because I just don't think that the party would ever be the same again. And that may be an interesting outcome if that were to happen. Obviously, tons to talk about there. But no, I think a third party candidate is mainly a spoiler. I think we're talking around the margins. I don't think you're going to have a candidate other than perhaps someone like Donald Trump who could get enough support, not even as much support as Ross Perot got. He got, I believe. 19% in 1992. It is very hard to see how a third party candidate wins in our uh, system, because as you know, it is not the popular vote that elects a president. It is the electoral vote, and it's really hard to see a path. No Labels has been trying to make that case, but their analysis is really faulty, and I think that if No Labels fields a candidate, that is really bad news
0: for Democrats. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about. What do you make of No Labels? I'm
1: highly suspicious of them. Mark Penn is one of their chief advisors. He was a former pollster for Bill Clinton back in the early 90s, and he has subsequently turned into an informal advisor to Donald Trump. And so I look at no labels right now, and and because they don't disclose their funders, I see them as potentially a stalking horse for some sort of candidate that can take support away from the Democratic candidate, and in this case, Joe Biden. I do not trust their motivations in terms of what they're looking for. I think that most Democrats are increasingly eyeing them as wary. And if Joe Manchin, he has been on the board of no labels while he's still flirting with a presidential run, I think it's probably part of his scheming to figure out how to position himself as a true centrist so that perhaps he can have a chance at winning re-election in West Virginia. But you never know. Joe Manchin's a hard to predict character. But if he were to run as a no labels candidate, Joe Biden's in big
0: trouble. One follow-up to something else that you mentioned a moment ago. Has Chris Christie been more effective in his two weeks as a nominee than you thought he might be? Because I've got to confess, I'm finding him more effective than I thought he would be. Well, he's definitely been effective
1: at vocalizing this anti-Trump message, that's for sure. Something that we haven't really heard from anyone other than Democrats at this point, but hearing it from a Republican, hearing it from a former Trump loyalist like Christie is definitely effective. What you see, though, in the early polling numbers is while he has increased his support, and that's a key factor because he needs to have a certain level of support to be able to make the debate stage for the Republican primary debates, he has also become Become the top candidate of Republicans who say they will never vote for him. So the more he talks, the more he loses the Trump wing of the party. And he has this really interesting situation where he's speaking for the anti-Trump Republicans, the never Trump Republicans, and perhaps he could pull some of them out to vote in Republican primaries, but he's also solidifying those people against him those people who are loyal to Trump and don't like Christie. He's a wild card for sure. If he were to get into a general election, as we said last week, I think he would be quite effective as a Republican candidate nationally. Really hard to see how he gets the nomination.
0: And to transition just slightly to other news, how in the world might things be affected if House Republicans actually go ahead and impeach Joe Biden? Apparently that's their new thing, taken.
1: Well, you've got articles to impeach from uh, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're involved in their own fight right now. Marjorie Taylor Greene says Lauren Boebert has stolen her impeachment articles. And then you've got Kevin McCarthy, who is sitting on top of this clown show in the House of Representatives, trying to do anything he can to not take a vote on impeachment because he knows, first of all, to be taken seriously at all by voters, you have to have hearings, you have to have a process here. You don't just whip out articles of impeachment and vote willy-nilly on this. And McCarthy realizes that this is a total train wreck for his party. He also realizes that forcing more than a dozen Republicans that he has in his caucus who represent districts that were won by Joe Biden, he knows that that's going to be a really tough vote for them to take. And that's the last thing that he really wants to at this point. But will there ultimately be an impeachment vote against Joe Biden? You know, McCarthy seems to have put it off for this week, but ultimately it seems like that's where the Republican caucus is
0: headed can they just not help themselves? I mean, every time they start to try to move forward in some collective way, freezing things on the floor, going with dueling impeachment articles, obviously going all the way back to Kevin McCarthy's Speaker of the House origin story of 15 rounds of voting, it seems like they can't just help themselves.
1: I think that's exactly right. They really can't. You know, sitting here today as we record in Nancy Pelosi's home district, I'm just reminded of how skilled she was as a speaker. She protected those moderate votes that she had that allowed her to keep her in power. She did everything she could to not make them take tough votes. It seems that Kevin McCarthy is not able to do that. It seems like every vote is going to be a tough vote for the moderate Republicans, for these Republicans who represent districts won by Joe Biden. It seems like the party can't help themselves, that they're just forcing a vote every single week that is going to be embarrassing to these candidates. So it really is remarkable. And it shows you how good a speaker Nancy Pelosi was. She was not going to allow the left side of her party to force her into the minority that way
0: if house republicans can't save themselves i am going to save myself because the only more dangerous place to be than where that joe biden motorcade was which is to say between you and dinner the only more dangerous place to be is where i find myself right now which is between you and your morning coffee so why don't you go have that and we'll talk once you're uh, back in new york I am going to go
1: get some coffee,
0: I'm going to pack, and
1: then I will be back in New York. See you, Chris. Good travels taken.